This morning in our study of Revelation, we come to the topic of Babylon. Now, Babylon has been mentioned a couple of times in the text, but it really becomes a major focus today. Uh, Babylon, of course, is a very literal place. The ruins of Babylon today are in uh, modern-day Iraq. Uh, By all accounts, it was once a magnificent city, powerful and very impressive. But in very real terms, when this text was written, when Revelation was written, Babylon is irrelevant. It is no longer a great power. It's no longer even a great city. It's not a player on the world stage. But symbolically, in the text of Revelation, Babylon is the source of evil, the source of idolatry, the source of rebellion against God, and Babylon must fall as part of this final judgment. As a matter of fact, this text says that there is a double portion of God's wrath that has been reserved for Babylon. John's vision uh, about Babylon will take up the better part of three chapters in Revelation. So, if nothing else, simply by volume, it's an indication that this is an important topic in Revelation. And so we won't read all of those three chapters for the sake of time, but I would encourage you to do that. We're going to hit on some of the highlights. Starting with 17, starting with verse 3, Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. A name written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the abomination of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. So symbolically, Babylon is the ultimate expression of empire, and that's really how it's used here. It is this whole idea of empire. And Revelation, of course, has referenced this notion over and over again, this this difference between the empires of men and the kingdom of God. Geographically, Babylon is due east of Jerusalem. And so there's this sense in which we're sort of, if we're looking at the map and people who understood these these places, there's a sense in which here's, here's Jerusalem that sits in, in the promised land of God, and that in the end will retain, will regain glory beyond compare. And then directly east of that, sitting over in Mesopotamia, is Babylon that will symbolize all of this uh, empirical evil. But again, as these words are written, Babylon is completely irrelevant. Nobody cares about Babylon. And and for the most part, Jerusalem's not particularly a great city at the time either. They're they're both occupied territories. In the immediate context of Revelation, in the time that it was written and to the audience it was written to, 
In the immediate context of Revelation, Babylon is Rome. The angel describes this woman as sitting on this beast with seven heads, and those seven heads represent seven hills. Well, Rome is the city built on seven hills. It said that she sits on many waters, and Rome was the military uh, naval power of her day. So the first readers of these texts would have immediately associated these words not with the historical Babylon, but with Rome. Rome, in other words, in that time was the current manifestation of the idea of Babylon. But now, historically, of course, the real city of Babylon played a very important role uh, in, in the scriptures. Not only did the kingdom of Judah ultimately fall to Babylon, but even before that, the kingdom of Israel falls to the Assyrians, and the Assyrians at the time were in control of, you guessed it, Babylon. But we remember it primarily because uh, Babylonian exile followed the destruction of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem falls, as the prophet said that it would, to the Babylonians and the, uh, the people, the remaining people in, in Judea are sort of trucked off to the Babylonian empire where they will be in exile until they are allowed to return. Now, you may recall that that's where the whole story arc, those of you who have been following along with me all this time, know that this whole city, um, the city on a hill story arc, this city of God story arc that we have been in for many, many months now, started in this era. It started with Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah and and, and the people of God returning from exile in Babylon to go and rebuild the city because the prophet said that they would rebuild the city, that it would be grander than before, and that ultimately a messianic king would come to sit on the throne of David and rule from that city. That's the promise, and they're all working towards that promise. So we, our story takes us at least that far back, and Babylon is the lever that makes that whole story work. Because it's the defeat of the Jews, the destruction of the city, and the exile of what remains of Israel that is the precursor to that story of reconstruction. But the roots of Babylon extend even further back to the Tower of Babel. So the Hebrew word for Babel and Babylon is actually the same word. So the, the Jews clearly associated that story of Babel with what would become Babylon. Now, you remember that story. The people try to build a tower to the heavens, and God doesn't like that idea, so he confuses their languages, so they, they cannot uh, cooperate and work together. The issue is not the height of the tower. The issue is the assumption of the people, the arrogance of the people, in thinking of their own greatness, that they can create their own empire that will be as great as anything God has tried to offer them. The site of that rebellion against God that God puts down 
would ultimately be associated with the city of Babylon. That's going pretty far back. But the idea of Babylon goes even further back. We go all the way back where Babylon is suggested even earlier in the text by the land of Nod. Now, Nod might not be quite as familiar to you. This takes us to the story of Cain and Abel. Now, you remember this story. Cain kills his brother Abel in what is the world's first murder, also the world's uh, first sibling rivalry. Cain kills his brother Abel, and as punishment for killing his brother Abel, God exiles him even further, sends him away. So even though they're not in Eden, this first family is still to some extent enjoying the presence and the fellowship of God, but they're sent to, he's sent away. Cain is sent away. And he's sent away to be a wanderer. You're going to wander the land, God says. And Cain, having known the fellowship and the presence of God, is very concerned by this. Concerned, first off, that he'll be killed. Someone, someone will find him and kill him for what he's done. So God says, don't worry about that. You have my protection. But you're going to be a wanderer. Now here's the interesting thing. Cain goes east of Eden to the land of Nod. And does he wander? No, he starts to build a city. Cain starts to build a city. And you kind of see a running theme here? Sometimes somebody starts to build a city sort of get in trouble with God. Now, the problem is not cities themselves, although those of us who don't live in cities like to look at the cities as if they are the problem. The problem is not the cities themselves. There's nothing inherently wrong with building a city. The issue is that humanity, whenever it's building a city, tends to fall prey to the error of empire. See, in the process, in the process of setting up our own civilizations, our own community, our own fellowship, we get caught up in this fallacy of empire. And that is this. The empire always assumes that it can create peace, order, justice, meaning, and prosperity and that we'll be able to do it without God. That's the big flaw of empire. What godlessness and empire actually create is prosperity for very few, is justice for some, is disorder and meaninglessness for everybody, and peace for no one. But that's not even the big offense of empire. The big offense of empire is its idolatry. It turns to another god. It replaces God. It seeks to replace God. And so in Revelation, what we have is this idea of Babylon contrasted with the new Jerusalem. And again, neither city at that time was particularly great. They're both in occupied territories. Nobody powerful is sitting there. But Babylon in the Revelation text is this symbol of the empire. New Jerusalem is the symbol of, of this descending 
uh, city of God, the seat of Christ's kingdom authority in the world to come. And the angel takes this comparison. He's telling us about Babylon. He's telling us about the beast. The angel explains to John that the heads and the horns of this beast represent kings. Now, the imagery here draws very heavily from the book of Daniel, just like earlier visions in Revelation have done. But unlike Daniel, it's, it's very difficult to establish a very clear lineage. In other words, it's difficult to take these heads and these horns and say, well, this, is, this was this person and this was that king and, and so on and so forth. A lot of people have tried and none of their arguments are particularly convincing. It is the idea of kings, the idea of empire that seems particularly important to the understanding of the text. And also the time placement, because the time uh, places us between the sixth and seventh head, as it were, the sixth and seventh king. So once again, we find ourselves in, with that, that idea that we live in these last days. We're between the sixth and the seventh. The sixth trumpet has already blown and the seventh trumpet is going to. So there's this sense in which, which, which time is coming to an end. The ten horns, we're told, also represent kings, kings yet to come, or kings within those last days. Now, are those kings literal? I don't know. I don't know. But what we can take literally is that these kings have one purpose. Their purpose is to give power and authority to the beast. That's what the text says. So in Revelation 17, verse uh, 15, Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. A lot going on here. And here's what we can get from this description of Babylon. Babylon is a seductress. The imagery of people committing, the kings and nations committing adultery with Babylon, that's, that's a description of idolatry. We have that uh, all through the Old Testament, this notion that idolatry is, is, like, is like committing adultery. The, the one God with whom we are in covenant, we turn our back on him and turn to other gods. So that idea is very familiar. But this Babylon, this seductress, she is not merely a passive player in this drama. She entices humanity to this adultery. It sort of draws on that imagery of Proverbs, of folly being the prostitute out in the street corner who calls and tries to draw men in. Instead of choosing wisdom, they might choose folly. She sits on many waters, meaning that she has influence over all the peoples, all the nations of the world. And Babylon has never really disappeared. It's an ever-present reality. 
the angel explains that the, the empire, when it rises again, surprises the people of the world because they thought it was gone. They thought it was dead. It's never really dead. The Babylon reference might surprise those who don't understand its symbolic significance because who cares about Babylon at this point in history? But the idea of Babylon never really goes away. Babylon was a great, magnificent, and incredibly oppressive and violent empire. And then it was gone, but it, it reappears as Persia. And then Persia is gone, but it reappears as Greece. And then Greece is gone, and it reappears as Rome, and ultimately Rome is gone. But the idea of Babylon never really goes away. Understand that a great many revolutions have taken place throughout human history in order to overthrow tyrants that resulted in placing new tyrants in power. As a matter of fact, this is the norm of human revolutions. We fight battles to overcome those who oppress us, and then the oppressed, if they are victorious, become the new oppressors and enforce their will on the world. The impulse to empire is formidable. The power and the prosperity of empire is a draw on the human heart. And while we all will reject others playing God, we all imagine that if we had the opportunity to play God, we would do it better. Babylon is worshipped and despised very often by the same people. And this is a bit confusing. The beast and the prostitute both represent this uh, evil impulse of empire. So we think they ought to be on the same side of this battle, but they're not. They're both accomplishing the evil purpose of empire, but they hate each other in the process. This is confusing, admittedly. But the kings, the beast and the kings, they will despise Babylon even as they serve and empower her. One of the things we have to remember here is that when we talk about love and hate in the scriptures, it's very much a verb. It's very much about what we're actually doing. Not about how they feel as much as about, it's about what they do. And what they do is despise the city that they empower. You see this in political leaders even today, if we look closely enough. There's a sense in which I derive my power from the system, but I also hate the system, and I hate the people who are underneath the system. The nation, the empire, is about acquiring power and wealth. We really don't care what city it is, and the city doesn't really, really care all that much what nation or king it is, as long as we're all working towards our own selfish ends. Babylon will be mourned by the powerful and the prosperous. Most of chapters 18 and 19 of Revelation are dedicated to this topic of who is mourning and who is celebrating the fall of Babylon. Mourning will come from the kings and tyrants who achieved their power 
and from merchants who profited from Babylon's appetites. In other words, it's a selfish sort of mourning. Not mourning Babylon herself, they're mourning what Babylon did for them and can do no more. In, verse, in chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, it says, After this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. What we see here is that the kingdom will not be perfected on earth until Babylon falls. She has to be taken out of the way. Babylon is the ever-present specter of empire. She props up a civilization of rebellion against God. She purports to replace the presence, the purpose, and the provision of God in the lives of men. She is the evil of almost. She promises to be everything that God is for us. To create fellowship without the fellowship of the Creator. And until that idolatry is destroyed, some portion of earth will always remain in rebellion against God. But then back in, in chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, it says, When the kings of earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her, terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. And that's significant. Babylon will collapse in an hour. Uh, later on, it'll say a day, but the time frame is symbolic. It's not to, not to be taken literally. The idea is that it will all happen quickly. The idea of empire the kings and the kingdoms of men standing independent of God. Presumably, this persistent impulse of arrogance and tyranny, the seduction of power and prosperity at the cost of justice, that idolatry that never really dies, never really disappears from human affairs, abruptly and decisively and this is consistent with all these passages about the day of the Lord and everything leading up to this point is slow right because God is patient somebody's waiting for Jesus to return how come he hasn't come back yet because God is patient everything's moving slowly because God wants as many as possible to have the opportunity to repent to turn to him it's all very slow but we come to this point in the story, the day of the Lord, when God's patience expires. And at the expiration of God's patience, everything happens very quickly. Demonstrating the sovereignty of God, there are no protracted battles to fight once God decides to bring everything to an end. Babylon falls like a house of cards. 
And all the people who thought she was too big to fall, all the people who thought that they would go on becoming prosperous and powerful because of her, are shocked at how quickly her foundations can corrupt and she comes to nothing. Verses 4 through 8 of chapter 18, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as a glory and the luxury that she has given herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen. I'm not a widow, I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day, her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire. For mighty is the Lord God who judges her. The call of heaven is to come out of Babylon. Babylon is going to fall. This much is written. This is beyond question. The empires of this world, the kings of this earth, everything that brings power and, and, and prosperity to the ages of men, all of these things will collapse. The idea of coming out of Babylon takes us back once again to Ezra and Nehemiah as the people, a remnant of the people, begin to leave Persia and make their way back to the promised land to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And it is a remnant that leaves. Most of the people, even after they're granted their freedom, most of the people, most of the Jews, stay put. They stay in Babylon. They stay in Persia. Why? Because over the 70 years that the people spent there, the people have built for themselves a very comfortable life in the empire. And the call of heaven is no matter how comfortable your life in the empire is, she's going to fall. She's going to collapse. You you need to come out of her. You need to come out of that space. How many of us have built lives that seek power and prosperity over seeking kingdom? That is a life of empire. And Christ calls us to come out. Come live in the kingdom. That house will collapse and burn. But you have an opportunity to build for eternity.